So we're going to be in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 25 to 32. We're going to be finishing Ephesians 4, and the two more chapters left. It wouldn't be sad if all the finishes. Okay. Ephesians 4, starting from verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his, which, with his neighbour. For we are members one of another. Be angry... And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. For the thief no longer uh, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, last week we uh, saw that Christians have to be different from the world, that we have a sin nature and that sin nature is inherited from Adam. And that uh, Paul encouraged us to take off that old man. We need to take off that old man. We need to put it on the new man. We need to put it on Jesus Christ. And we need to be growing into righteousness and holiness. And this passage is kind of specifics. This is what it looks like. This is what this looks like in action. Taking off the old self and putting on the new self. Did you catch how in Paul's language, he said, don't be like this, rather be like this. He's like, take off that old self, take off that old man, take off Adam, put on Jesus, put on the way that he is. And you can see how it's sort of tied in together. It's don't do this, but do this. And at the end, Jesus is the example. Jesus is the example that we follow. And so there's this general, uh, general sort of principle of how we're supposed to live. Now, there are two ways that you can react, uh, interact with the church. There are only two ways. You're either constructive and you add to the life of the church, or you're destructive. There's no middle ground, there's no neutral. In fact, apathy in the church is a destructive trait. So if you think you can come into a church and just be neutral and sit in the pews and not contribute to the life of the church, you're adding to destruction within the church. But construction is something that we, all together, uh, are involved in as we create this church made by God, as we grow up into maturity into Christ. And so you can see how... Ephesians 4 is, is a lot about how we operate as a church. The kind of the entire, uh, the entire chapter is about us as a church. In fact, the entire book really is about the church. And so as we're going to go into this, remember this is really important. Remember the gospel. Because we're going to talk about morality. We're going to talk about the way you ought to live and the way you ought to do things. And the temptation, whenever we talk about this, is to immediately forget everything else we've read in Ephesians. The fact that you're saved by grace, through faith, not by works. So nothing that we're going to talk about right now will save you. It cannot possibly save you. By obeying these things, you will not be saved. You're saved by have faith in Jesus. But faith always produces something. Faith is real, it's tangible. And so we want to obey this as a response. Only as a response, not as a way to work for our own salvation. And so we're going to start verse 25. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 
but we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And so Paul immediately appeals to our unity and he says, put away falsehood. What kind of falsehood? Everything we've just read before. Everything we've just read in the, in the uh, last week's talk. Um, we're going to put away our deceitful desires. We're going to put away our formal way of life. We're going to put away the falsehood, the way when we lived in falsehood, when we told, uh, when lies were a part of our everyday life, when we were self-deceiving. Uh, we don't want lies to be at the center of what's going on. This is what Paul is saying. And so he says, instead, we have to speak the truth to our neighbor. We've already seen that, speak the truth in love. And we saw that there were two false loves last week. There's the false love that is hyper-controlling, where you want to control everything about a person, and that way you feel like you're loving them, but actually you're crushing them, and you're, you're doing it for your own selfish motives. And the same way that a lot of people just let people get away with stuff. They don't want... They don't want to intervene with stuff that people got going on. They want to accept them for who they are. They want to let them destroy themselves, basically. Um, and this is not what Paul wants. He wants us to speak the truth, which is great, but not in a way that's controlling, and do it with love. And that's also great, but in a way where truth still applies and we're still uh, actually loving people. And the best way to do it is ask yourself a question, do I love this person? And in what I'm planning to do when I do speak truth to this person, Am I doing it for myself or am I doing it for them? And that's a good way to check your heart before you ever get into a situation where you want to rebuke someone, where you want to, um, you want to correct someone. Uh, the best corrections, the best rebukes are the ones where the people that you're doing it to don't even know that you're correcting them. It's in such a relational way that, they, uh, that you're pointing them on the right path and because they respect you and because they like who you are as a person, they want to follow that path. Um, so Paul says, speak the truth in love. In here it says... Um, speak the truth with his neighbor, with each person's neighbor. Why? Because we are members one of another. We are together. And it's like the image of a body. If your finger hurts, your whole body hurts. I once had this terrible um, infection in my ring finger. Uh, it's after I almost cut the tip off it when I was working in hospitality. And uh, my finger grew so fat and throbbed so much that I could barely do anything without recognizing how much my finger hurt. And my finger is this tiny part of my body but the rest of my body was like barely able to function while this was going on. And that is what we need to think of with the church. When one of us is out of place, we should all be out of place. If one of us can just leave and no one notices, then something is wrong at a fundamental level. We should be caring for one another. We should be united. Why? Because we're members one of another. And so Paul's going to address anger now. Paul's going to address anger. Now, anger is... A very dangerous, explosive force. It's something that makes us uh, very foolish. Uh, the reason why you feel very um, ashamed after you have an angry outburst is the reason why you feel like a fool is probably because you were a fool, probably because you did do something silly and rash in your anger. Uh, it harms our relationships with people. It also harms your body, fascinatingly. It puts your heart at risk of heart disease and heart attack. Uh, it gives you a higher risk of stroke, um, you get a weakened immune system, it raises um, levels of anxiety and depression, and it really kind of wreaks havoc on your mental health. So anger, physiologically, is not a good thing. Um, and it often begets more anger. Back in the day, psychologists used to say, it's healthy to vent your anger, you need to vent your anger. You gotta get out, make sure your anger gets out of you. But now they don't really do that anymore because they know that the more you vent your anger, the more of an angry person you become, and the more quickly you turn to anger. 
So the more you vent your anger, it doesn't actually help you. And so venting your anger is not necessarily a healthy thing either. And so it gets worse and worse the more you indulge it. But there are many warnings in the Bible against anger. But don't get me wrong right now, anger is not a bad thing in the Bible. The Bible will not come out and say that anger is a bad emotion, you need to repress it, there's no place for anger. In fact, anger is an ideal in the Bible. It's something that we should strive to have, and that is righteous anger. We should strive to have righteous anger. So the ideal in the Bible is not brash, hot-tempered, quick, the moment someone gets on your nerves, you explode in anger, but it's also not never getting angry. It's also not never asserting uh, yourself in a situation. To not get angry is to sin. And to be quick to anger is also a sin. So what's the ideal? Well, the Bible says it's slow anger. Be quick to listen and slow to anger. James 1, 19, 20 says this. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The Bible doesn't tell us not to get angry. In fact, Paul here says, be angry. It's an imperative. He's telling you to be angry. Now, we don't want to be a bunch of angry people in a church. That's, not a, that, that's a quick way to have a very destructive church. So what is Paul talking about? Why is he saying, be angry? Well, he says, be angry, but don't sin. Now, how many of us struggle with that? I'll be, I'll be the first to admit that the moment I get angry, sin is quick to follow the moment I get mad is the moment that I'm unreasonable, I'm irrational, I have crazy expectations of people, um, I have to withdraw from relationships the moment I get angry. Anger for me produce, does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger for me is often a bad thing. So why does Paul tell me to be angry? Why does he tell me to be angry? Well, when you love something, you will get angry. <coughs> Anger is a result of love. Because if you don't love anything, you will not get angry. What do I mean? Well, parents here will know that if anything threatens your child, uh, you're going to get angry. You're going to get angry at the thing that threatens your child because you love your child. And that anger is sometimes a great reaction to have because that anger spurns you into action and you want to rush out on the road and save your child from a coming car. That's great. That kind of anger is um, a good kind of anger. But for God, when He gets angry, He gets angry when things threaten the things He loves. So He's often provoked to anger. Do you remember in Zechariah, He's provoked to anger at His people Israel because they're destroying themselves? And He's allowed them over a really long time. He's been very, very slow to anger, but He's been provoked. And He's been provoked to anger and He's sent them off into exile. And so God is slow to anger. When uh, Moses goes up into Mount Sinai and he encounters God and it's this kind of interesting tale where he has to veil his glory because if Moses saw all of God's glory, Moses is going to die. So Moses sees like this faint imprint of God's glory and he proclaims his name. And God says this, he says um, uh, in uh, Exodus 34, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, anger is a part of God's character. And if we're called to be holy as God is holy and reflect and grow up into the character of Jesus, then we've got to be growing in righteous anger. Now, that's not something you hear often in the church, is it? 
being told to grow in righteous anger. Uh, there's this good quote from this uh, lady, Rebecca Pippet. I'm just going to read it to us. Um, she says this, We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God would be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of, uh, of the expression of others. So what is God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his, his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. And that's why in the cross of Jesus we see injustice and love so intermingled, married together. We see God unable to turn his back on injustice and evil, but loving and forgiving at the same time. And we see God's anger because we because God's wrath is poured out on Jesus in that moment. And anger is important. Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not be quick. But be slow to anger, just as God is. The way to assess whether your anger is out of control is do you have a temper? If you, if you have a temper and in a second you can go from enjoying your life and being angry, then you know you've got an anger problem because God is not like that. He doesn't have a temper, it doesn't flare up in a second, but he does get angry. It's slow, it's gradual, and he gets there. God is very protective of his people, and he can be provoked to anger. And we should be just as protective of the things that God gives to us, of the church, of our family, of whatever God has placed in our stewardship. We should love it, and if we do love it, we'll get angry get angry, but it will be slow. Righteous anger is always slow. Paul says, next, don't give any opportunity to the devil. This one is, I feel like, pretty self-explanatory. You all know instinctively what that means. Why? Because when you get angry, man, you are so easily manipulated by the devil in that moment. The devil just has you around his finger. He can do whatever he wants. You're like his little puppet. Anger is like the devil's cocaine. It's addictive. He wants you to get addicted to it. He wants you to be outraged. Go on social media. Just watch the media. Outrage is a commodity. It is, uh, you can earn a lot of money off outrage. All you have to do, write a few clickbait articles, put them up. You can earn a lot of money off advertising just by feeding people's outrage. And it is addictive. Anger is addictive. And the devil will get you addicted to it if he can. And he'll destroy your marriage. He'll destroy your family. He'll destroy your friendships. He'll destroy the church with anger if he can. This is why Paul says, don't give opportunity to the devil. Don't give any opportunity to the devil. Don't let the sun go down. That's how you don't give any opportunity to the devil. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. What does that mean? Don't let it linger. We're not a very, um, in, in our culture in Australia, conflict resolution is probably not one of our strengths as a, as a culture. Uh, we're not people that are inclined to have hard conversations with people. Um, and so we're people that are likely to let the sun go down in our anger. We're likely to let it fester, to linger, to not express it. Paul says, don't let the sun go down. Don't let it go down, because the longer you leave it there, the more opportunity you give to the devil. 
which means resolve it as quickly as you can. If you're so emotional that you can't speak to someone, maybe not the best time to um, talk about it uh, with someone. Maybe sleeping on it is a good idea. You may say, isn't Paul saying don't sleep on it? Well, I, I would say don't, but some people probably, it depends on the situation. Um, the, the key thing that Paul wants us to get here is deal with it as quickly as possible. Don't drag it out. Don't let bitterness seep in. Don't let all these things happen. We're going to see this a bit later in Ephesians. Um, he goes on to now talk about the thief. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. See, the thief needs an attitude shift. He needs one from taking to giving. Now, you may think, Oh, you know, this is, you know, this verse doesn't really apply to me because I haven't stolen something since I was in primary school. Um, stealing things isn't really what goes on in my life. Maybe you do steal things. Maybe you've stolen things last week. I don't know what's, I mean, if, if I, I knew about it, I probably would have talked to you about it. So I don't know anyone here that's done it. And I don't know whether or not you're inclined to want to steal things. But the key thing that Paul's talking about here is if you are a taker, if you are someone that is constantly taking things, turn into someone that is a giver, that provides, that does hard, honest work. Labor, what does he say? He says, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. See, stealing is more than simply taking what isn't yours, but a sense of entitlement, a sense of people owe me. I, I should be able to take things. And you see it in our society. They think, you know, the government needs to give me money. And they don't realize that in order for the government to give you money, you've got to take money off someone else. And it's this attitude of taking. And this is not the attitude of a Christian. We should not have an attitude of wanting to take things, constantly being these consumers, but never working with our own hands, never doing honest, hard work. Christians should be hard workers. We should be people that are um, wanting to provide for people that are under our care. Now, it doesn't mean that always looks like employment. It doesn't mean that you have to go get a job. It means that whatever God has set before you, you work hard at it. So you can provide. So if you're a mother and, and you have to stay at home, that is a great and noble calling. And working hard in that doesn't, you are providing so much for those children that is way, way more value than simply money. And this is what is going on here. We need to remember that we're going to be providing for people, not just with money, although money is in view here, but with everything. We need to be caring for each other. We need to be providing. We need to be bearing each other up. Uh, we need to be leading each other into maturity. And money is, to an extent, some part of it, but I would say focus more on giving grace to people around you and bestowing undeserved favour on people, just as Jesus did. Um, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 8, Paul says, um, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Uh, Paul was a tent maker by trade, and he went into Thessalonica and planted a church, and they were very, very poor, Thessalonica. And he didn't feel okay with asking them to pay for him. Even though, he says later, I could have because I, des like, I deserve my wages in the sense that he knows that what he is doing is worthwhile labor and that being paid frees him up to do that kind of ministry. But he knew that they were poor and he decided to serve them by working alongside his ministry. And he worked night and day, he worked hard, and he set an example for all of them. 
And it's fascinating that when the Jerusalem church was in trouble, who gathered enough money to go and help them? Thessalonica, the poor church. The church learned from Paul how to work hard and give out of their poverty. And Paul commends them for that. Uh, and in, and other, some of the other churches, the wealthy churches, didn't give to the same extent that Thessalonica gave. And they saw that from Paul's example. And so work is given um, to us as a gift. Uh, Adam in the garden, if you remember back in Genesis, uh, what, was he, what was he given? He was given uh, work in the garden before the fall, which means work is good. Work is created by God before the fall. So we need to incorporate work in our life. We need to be hard workers. If we're not hard workers, we need to check our hearts and ask ourselves, why are we on this path of taking rather than putting ourselves on a path where we can set ourselves up to giving? All right, next one. Hope I haven't uh, overloaded you with a lot of stuff. There is a lot of stuff in this passage. Um, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay, now we're getting to speech. Uh, I'm just going to rattle off a few verses for you. Proverbs 10.11 The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 10.32 The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. And then James 3, 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Back uh, in uh, November, there was a really bad car crash in Pelamane, and um, it erupted into flames. It's this small little car fire, but ended up spreading all across the, um, all the, uh, the bush out there. Ended up coming almost and, and taking out um, Ian and Catherine's place, but the firefighters got a hold of it. Uh, but it is funny how one guy simply crashing into a tree started this amazing inferno that almost destroyed a whole bunch of buildings. And that's what James, in that verse I just read, is saying, that your tongue, this tiny little thing in your mouth, but your communication, what you say, has long-lasting ramifications on people. Some of the most uh, deep and long-lasting trauma comes from what people say. It comes from what people say. And being attacked by the tongue is far more damaging than being attacked by someone's fists. Being attacked by someone's tongue has such long-lasting ramifications. And it's ill-fitting, unfitting behaviour for Christians. It's not behaviour we need to be building up with our mouth. And I know in Australian culture we love a bit of banter, we love a little bit of ribbing. And I'm not against that. And I don't think Paul is saying don't have that because if it's done in a context where people know what's going on, that's fine. But if that starts to move into you're tearing someone down, you're bringing someone down, well, we need to check that. We need to make sure that we don't let our culture dictate how we speak. The way we speak as Christians is for building up of the other person. And so we need to make sure that we have a filter, that we make sure that what we're saying is actually helpful to that person. Uh, we don't want to be just spouting out things and offending people and, and creating long-lasting relational damage. And I know a lot of, for a lot of us, the things we regret most are the words that we have you know, foolishly spoken, in, a, in sometimes in anger, sometimes in sadness, sometimes attacking people, pushing them away, things we didn't mean. But once you say it, 
and the blaze has started, it's really hard to put it out. It's very hard to put it out. And uh, prevention is always better than cure. Uh, I think this is what Paul's getting at. It's better to build people up rather than say something and then try to uh, reconcile it later. Because even uh, once you've said it, it's out there. You can't take it back. Um, and I know I don't, don't want to make you guys feel super depressed, but I know for me, I've, I've said things, um, especially when I was a teenager, uh, to my dad. I've said things to my brothers that even to this day I am ashamed of. And I can't take it back. And like the long-lasting ramifications of what I've said are still there. Um, and it affects my witness. I know I did them before I was a Christian, but a lot of people still think I haven't changed. I'm still the same dodgy dude I was back then. And uh, those fires take a long time to get, uh, to get put out. And the reason, well not the reason, but it's, this is ill-fitting behavior for a Christian. Um, Paul says, do not breathe the Holy Spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit. It says, don't breathe the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. What does that mean, breathing the Holy Spirit? Well, grief comes from grief, comes from sorrow, sadness. It is the Holy Spirit indwelling you as a Christian and you, uh, what, telling lies, getting angry, stealing, and uh, using your tongue to destroy others. Paul's saying, if you do those things, you're going to bring grief, you're going to bring sadness on the Holy Spirit. I know a lot of us instinctively feel like, oh, we don't really struggle with that. We don't really struggle with lying or stealing or getting angry or, um, or uh, the last one I just said, <laughs> uh, speaking, the, the things you speak to someone. Um, but I hope as I was describing those things, you kind of saw yourself in it and you kind of realized, oh, hang on a minute, like I do struggle with that. Well, when you struggle with that, you're bringing grief and sorrow to the Holy Spirit. You're bringing grief and sorrow to the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He cares about us. He loves us. And He wants the community of God to flourish. The Holy Spirit is a person within you, capable of emotion. He, he is God. And don't just think of Him as an impersonal force, because that is not the Holy Spirit. He feels grief at the things we do. So don't just think of your sin as doing something wrong, but as grieving the one you love. Because that's what our sin does. It grieves the one we love, and that is God. And so if you love God, know that it brings sorrow on the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do not grieve. Sorry, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you were sealed by the Holy Spirit with the day of redemption. He's a down payment. He indwells you with all your sin currently right now, uprooting it, disciplining you, changing you, sanctifying you. And I don't know about you, but the fact that the Holy Spirit is within me grieving at my sin changes the way I view my sin. It changes it from kind of something I'm doing and God's kind of like up somewhere else angry at me rather than Him dwelling me and grieved at what I'm doing. So Paul's going to summarize this bit. That all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So he's summarizing this. He's saying bitterness, that's uh, resentment towards another person, uh, that, that sense of um, kind of like sour attitude that you might have towards someone. He's saying, put that away. Put that away. 
Uh, if you put that away, um, it will not lead to these other things. What are the other things? Anger, wrath. It's fascinating that we, Paul says, be angry and do not sin before. And now he's saying, put away anger. Well, I think what he's saying here is anger that comes from bitterness, anger that comes from um, uh, seeking your own uh, yourself. Uh, so he's got bitterness, expresses itself in wrath and anger, and that then expresses itself in clamor and slander. Now, that word clamor is like shouting someone down. That word clamor is when you get into a shouting match with someone. That's when you get so angry that you end up having to hurl abuses at someone. You end up having to force yourself in, uh, you know, kind of assert yourself in a conversation. I don't know if you've ever had things get to that level, but it's pretty intense when you, when you get to the level of clamor. Uh, but you might not be into that. The moment that someone starts yelling at you, you may shut down. And if you shut down, you're probably tempted by the second thing, and that's slander. That's to gossip about someone, to destroy someone with your words behind their back, while they're not there to defend themselves. And just, it's basically to speak ill of someone. And it's a deliberate action. I don't know, we're capable of doing both. We're capable of doing both. But some of us are more tempted to one side or the other. But if we let bitterness engulf us and we let that turn into wrath and anger, and then that wrath and anger turns into shouting people down and slander, Paul says, put that away. Take it off. Take off the old man. Put on the new man. Put it away with you. And then he says, along with all malice. Now, malice is kind of the end game of all of it. You end up at malice, it's all, you've gone through all of these steps because malice is when you wish to do violent harm to someone. That's when you're plotting to kill them or you're plotting ways you can beat them up or something like that. It's when you want to have violent retribution on someone or if you don't have the means to do it, you wish it upon them. It'd be like praying and praying that God would judge them kind of thing, that God would make their, their day terrible or that they would get hit by a bus, that kind of thing. Is when you get to the point of malice, you've stepped through all of these, and then Paul says, along with all malice, put it away. Take it off. Don't live like that. That's not the way that the church is supposed to live. Uh, if you're feeling really down right now, you're feeling pretty beat up, feeling like your sins just been kind of ripped up and shown to you. Well, Paul doesn't leave us there, because he says, don't do this do this, but particularly this last bit, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, when Jesus walked the earth, he embodied all these things. Kindness, tender-hearted, forgiving. When he interacted with people, yeah, he got angry. He overturned the money changers, he um, confronted the Pharisees, for, the way, for all of the terrible things that they were doing, but he did it all perfectly with the full righteousness of God. His anger achieved the righteousness of God, but ours does not. Jesus spoke the truth in love. He got angry at that which threatened the things he loved. And he worked harder than everyone else. He achieved the salvation of the world. Jesus absorbed all our lies, all the lies that humanity hurled at him in his trial. He absorbed all our anger as we whipped him and beat him, all our violence. He absorbed all our mockery and our slander. All that we could throw at him, 
all the mockery, all the slander we could throw at him, he absorbed it all. He was slandered, he was shouted down. He had anger directed at him, but what did he do? In response, he was kind. He loves from the gut. That's what tenderheartedness means. It comes from a word that means your intestines. It's that feeling you get. It's that love you get from someone that's in your gut. That's what Paul. Uh, that's what Jesus had for his people. He was tender-hearted and he forgave us. Whenever you hear it says in the Bible where Jesus was moved to compassion, it's that word. He was literally moved in his gut to compassion to someone. And you know that feeling when you have that feeling. It doesn't happen all the time, but that feeling of Tender-heartedness is that compassion from the gut. And Jesus had that towards those that were his sheep. So when other people wrong you, when other people slander you, you can react the same as Jesus. Because he went before and accomplished it and did it. Because he absorbed it all, you can react the same way. Not because we are strong, but because Christ is kind. Because Christ is tender-hearted. Because he forgave others, we can forgive others. It says, he who is forgiven much, uh, forgives much, loves much. And so we need to build a church on these firm foundations. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Because we're all humans. Wherever humans are, conflict follows. Wherever humans are, sin follows. We're expecting to have to deal with conflict. We're not pretending that it won't happen in our church. And it may be be conflict with people you never thought you were going to have conflict with. But we can react the way that the rest of the world reacts. With Adam, you know, the jacket of Adam on. They'll react in the same way. They react with anger. They react with bitterness, with wrath, with clamor, with uh, slander. Like, I remember working at um, Macquarie Ice Rink in Sydney. And, like, it was the most hostile, toxic workforce I've ever been a part of. Um, But it is just behaviour that permeates the world. People often speaking ill of each other. People often angry. Outrage is kind of the... Just all throughout our culture. We should not be like that as the church. And the way that we do that is not by simply never getting into conflict, but by resolving conflict the way that Jesus would. Resolving conflict as Jesus, as following his footsteps, growing up into him as we all grow up into maturity into Jesus. That's why Paul said right at the end, right at the end of verse 32, as God in Christ forgave you, we forgive as God in Christ forgave us. Now, how much did God forgive you? Completely. (laughs) If you didn't do it completely, you're in trouble. But he washed you clean. And so Paul's saying, Forgive people, wash them clean. In your eyes, wash them clean. Can you do that? Can we forgive like Jesus? Well, we're flawed, we can't forgive like that, but with the Holy Spirit inside of us, growing us and sanctifying us, we can be working towards the characteristics of Jesus. And we need to be working towards the characteristics of Jesus. Because this is what Paul has for us. And I don't know about you guys, but I hear Paul's vision for the church and I want that. I assume you guys reading this want this in your church. I don't think you're thinking an angry church is where I want to be or a church where people steal is where I want to be or a church where people slander each other and talk behind their back and all sorts of corrupting speech comes out of their mouth. No, none of us want that. But remember, indifference is destructive. We need to be constructive. How about I pray for us?
Father, we thank you so much that you uh, loved us in our sin and in our brokenness. You entered into our world and you came vulnerable, you came killable, you were mocked and scorned, you absorbed everything we had to throw at you. Lord, help us in our sinfulness and in our uh, brokenness to love like you did, to forgive like you did, to be kind and tender-hearted. Lord, we have a lot of work to do on this. But Lord, we know that you are strong and that you are able and that you have a lot for us. We pray, Lord, that we would not leave today without conviction, that we would not leave today without rock-solid things we need to change in our lives. Lord, whatever it is, whatever you pushed on in people's hearts, whether it was their anger or their lives or the fact that they're always taking and never giving or whether they just do not watch what they say and they sow destruction wherever they go with their tongue. Lord, whatever you pushed on in their heart, I pray that you would push on it more. That it would hurt. That they would see that these things should not continue in their life and that they should want to change. And Lord, we know that you are eager and willing by the Holy Spirit to change it. Lord, we don't want to grieve you. We want to live in perfect fellowship with you, but we know our sin gets in the way. Show us where it is, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.